I read a story this week I have to pass on to you. It was a, about a man who was boarding a plane uh, going out of, of town, and as he was walking by the cockpit, he noticed that the head of this plane's um, cockpit flight was, um, was, um, was a woman. And so he found his seat, and he noticed that there were three people right behind him. One was a little boy, probably about seven or eight years old. And then there was a man who was, he thought, maybe in his 30s or early 40s. And then there was a woman that looked to be maybe, maybe his mother. He didn't know. But after he sat down, he said he couldn't help but overhear that what this trio was talking about was uh, the woman who was piloting the plane was... Um, was the little boy's mother and the young man's wife and uh, the older woman, her, her daughter. And, and so um, all of a sudden the, the plane starts taxiing and then it, then it takes off and it banks to, to the south and, and all of a sudden this little boy, he just started clapping and he said, way to go mom, way to go mom. And I thought about that in light of what this day is about. And we want everybody to hear loudly and clearly. Way to go, moms. We applaud you today. And this is a very special Sunday and one that we always look forward to. Thank you very much for all of you being here. And today, uh, we're going to be continuing our series on recovery. We're going to be talking about steps four and five, which are two of the most crucial steps in the 12-step program. Those of you who uh, know the 12 steps and know the recovery process, you are very well acquainted with these two steps that may be the hardest, may be even the most important, who knows, but they're definitely critical to the process. Step four is this. Make a searching and thorough inventory of yourself. Make a searching and thorough inventory of yourself. Now the purpose for searching and this fearless moral inventory that, that we know to be so important is to sort through some of the confusion and some of the contradiction that, that we have in life. You know I have come to be even more committed to this. I believe that everyone needs to be in a recovery. You know, when we read through these steps, especially this one, I, I dare say, who doesn't need to do this in their lives? It is so um, Christianity one-on-one. -on -one. It, is, it is so much a part of who we are called to be. To take this moral inventory and to start a new way of life needs to be about ridding the burdens and the traps that control and prevent us from really growing in life, in faith, in every way that's possible. And the fifth step is to admit to God and to ourselves and to another human being the exact natures of the wrongs. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of the wrongs. You know, some people seek an easier, softer way of doing general confession and knowing that God's always ready to hear our confessions, that we'll confess to God. And, and how important is that? It's ultimately important. But this step goes beyond just confessing to God. 
And as Scott said in the earlier service, it's not confessing to the tree either. It's not just <laughs> confessing to yourself. It's going to another human being and confessing to them the things that perhaps have brought shame and guilt into your life. You know, this act of specifically confessing things is the route to healing and what the recovery community knows so well to serenity, to serenity. Today we're going to read a text from the Bible that coincides so directly with these two steps. There's no denying it. And James has said it so well in the last chapter of this letter, this epistle, in the fifth chapter of James, beginning with the 13th verse. I'd like for us to read that this morning. I'm going to let you stay seated this morning, but we're still respecting God's word just as much. James 5, beginning with 13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You know, for those of us of a certain age, and I'm going to be a year older next Sunday, and it's a big year. You know what I mean? It, it's, a, it's a big year. You, you know, someone said, don't worry, 60 is the new 45. And I said, not if you're a United Methodist pastor. It's the new 95. You don't know anything. You're over the hill. But back to my point. For those of us of a certain age, we know Norman Rockwell, right? This artist who captured the American way of life. Now, beginning in 1916, that far back, he painted over 300 covers for the Saturday Evening Post, which have been classics in Americana art. Everything from childhood adventures in the old swimming hole. Do you remember that one, the old swimming hole? <laughs> to moving tributes of war heroes and the gentle laughter and the deep sentiments that we have when we see those, they bring smiles to your faces nearly all the time. But also sometimes a real challenge, a real challenge. He imagined what we imagine in life and what we hope life could be. You know, along the way, he also challenged some of our more narrow prejudices, didn't he? 
the narrow prejudices of those, that era, but it's amazing how some of those prejudices, though they present themselves in different lights, still exist today. One of his well-known uh, pieces was really four different um, uh, paintings and, or, or sketches, whatever you'd call his work. But these had to do with, with, with the freedom, um, first from, uh, of worship and the freedom of speech and then the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. And it showed during this World War II era, some of these freedoms that we were in essence fighting for, some dying for, and how important they were. He had this glorious uh, vision of this multicultural, multiracial understanding of what this country was about when it came to the freedom of worship. I think we have that particular slide up. And in addition to this particular one, freedom of worship, there was one that expanded on that. I remember when I came to Lover's Lane, this particular Norman Rockwell was presented, and it was a portrait of many different religions of the world. And it was under the banner of the topic, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we know that this caption is basically uplifted by all world religions in some form or fashion. And who can forget the powerful image of the brave little black girl in the white dress walking to school amid federal agents? Rockwell's statement against the evil of segregation and racial prejudice captured all of us. And, and the topic of this particular painting, the problem we live with. Now, I looked and looked for one that was specific to Mother's Day. I really did, mothers. And I couldn't find one, but I found several that kind of would, were leading us that way. And the one that I felt like did the best job of that was part of this Freedom series, and it was the Freedom from Want. And it shows this warm image of a family gathered around what looks to be a Thanksgiving table or maybe even a Christmas table. But there's a mother or there's a grandmother. You can see her there with that humongous, not a chicken, a turkey. <laughs> there's no chicken ever grew to that size. And few turkeys. You know, I don't know about you, but I've seen this, this all my life and I've wondered how on earth they carved that turkey at that crowded table as big as the turkey was. But when we see that portrait of the family, especially here on Mother's Day, we have to admit the truth of the matter is there's really no perfect family. As perfect as that image is and as many warm feelings as that feeling or, or that portrait develops in us, we know that there's no such thing really as the perfect family. Today we need to uh, understand, maybe even confess collectively, that our families today are very different. That to talk about family today, you really can't just put up a portrait of, of a family around the Thanksgiving table and think that everything is perfect in all families or the same in all families, right? Right? 
I mean, today there are single parent families, there are childless families, there are long distance extended families, multiracial families. There are families with two daddies and two, or two mothers. There are multicultural and international adoptive families. Families which have been broken by divorce or who struggle with some form of grief. There are families that deal with addiction. How many families I know, you know, who have either a child or a parent struggling with some addiction to substance or behavior. The families that we have in this larger family of the church are, are, are really a very diverse understanding of family. And you probably thought of some that I didn't list in that group. You know, it's also a time today when we understand that Mother's Day can kind of be painful to some degree. Especially when you couple it with steps four and five. You know, some years ago in a former church, I preached a traditional Mother's Day sermon, and I thought it was a pretty good sermon, actually. But I received an email that has forever kind of reminded me of the sensitivity related to Mother's Day. The email went like this. I've saved it all these years. I'm sure you meant well in your sermon today, you know, when they start out like that, they're not going to a good place. You know, I think, no, I meant real bad today in my sermon today. But did you consider those in the congregation who want children but can't have children? Or my daughter, who just suffered a miscarriage? Or the couple who adopted a child, but then the birth mother took the child back? What about the single parents or those who choose to remain childless? We had difficulty having children and always ran into the same thing on Mother's Day. Now I realize this is something you can't fully appreciate, but I ask for more sensitivity in the future. Now, now I'll admit that, that that email didn't feel all that great, but it is true. And it did sensitize me to what this day is about. And I think especially when this day is also a day when you're in a sermon series about recovery and you're dealing with steps four and five, that, that you're aware of a lot of dynamics and sentiments and emotions that come together on this day. You know, I want to say two things that we need to have when we begin work on steps four and five. These two things are courage and a sense of trust in the process of recovery. If we have these two things, both of them, courage and a sense of trust in the process, then we're able to deal with the specific fears and go through the admissions that we need to make to enter this step and then the other. And as addicts, that's all of us, I think. One of the biggest problems that we have is telling the difference between our responsibility and the responsibilities of others. 
We blame ourselves for catastrophes over which we have no control. And sometimes we can heap up the shame and the guilt about things that we couldn't have helped anyway. Conversely, we're often in complete denial about the things that we've done to hurt ourselves and to hurt others. Sometimes we over-dramatize minor troubles and we shrug off major problems that we really do need to take a look at. Are you with me? If we're not sure that the exact nature of our wrongs uh, are presenting, then for sure step four and five taken seriously will get you there. When we have the courage and trust the process enough to really enter into what are those moral failures that I need to name? Because if you can't name them, you're not going anywhere. And then how do I name them with another? With God and with another. What we can't see, oftentimes it is in the presence of that other that they can see and they can help us see more clearly that gets us to a place of what? Healing. What all of this is about is about a healing that is meant to take place in us that God surely desires for you, for me. But also your sisters and brothers in faith desire that for one another. Now I have a confession to make this morning. You ready? Everybody perks up when the preacher's making a confession. <laughs> Two of my earliest and most prominent childhood memories have to do with moral failures. Confessions and mothers. Now I've told you these stories through the years. And I tell them again to you now to just say that, that the basics of our moral inventory really happens real early because our proneness to sin or to wrongdoing is part of our human condition that we're lured toward. I, I told you a story once or twice, maybe three times, that involved a BB gun and my grandmother's love for cardinals. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? It's not going someplace good at first. Now, I want to remind you of my upbringing being a rural one first. Uh, that'll be somewhat of an excuse. My grandmother on my dad's side, my Copeland grandmother we called Grand, loved cardinals, redbirds as she called them. And she had several paintings in her house, some of which she had painted herself of cardinals. Oh, there would be the brilliant cardinals, you know, the males, the red ones. You know, they were always so very beautiful, and so were the female cardinals, even though their color was not as bright. You know, their brown nature and those orange accents were just so beautiful. And, and those, there was one right above the piano that she painted. 
that was special. Well, I remember when I got my first BB gun, my grandmother did give me one instruction, and that was, maybe it was a mandate, whatever you do, you never shoot a cardinal. Okay, easy enough. So I shot cans and fence posts and or two, <laughs> but not cardinals. And then one day, a pesky sparrow flew into my midst, one that had been eating my cat food, I'm, I assure myself, and, and he came into range, and I hate to admit this, but I'm going to, I'm confessing, right? I shot that little bird. And then I realized it wasn't a sparrow. It was a female cardinal. And, 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 and I felt terrible because the first one on the scene was the cardinal's mate. Red and brilliant in the top of the tree. And he was singing this mournful song. I mean, it was haunting. So I got a shovel as quick as I could and I dug a hole and I had a little burial for that female cardinal. And he kept singing. In fact, he followed me to the ball field that afternoon. Anywhere I went in town for the next several days, that cardinal followed me with that song. I kept feeling worse and worse, more shame and guilt. In fact, we could even go out of town and that cardinal would be there singing. You know, even today I can hear a cardinal sing, and guess what? I couldn't get away. Now, I was just a little guy. And I can remember sitting on my, my grandmother's uh, piano bench where we often sat, and she would play hymns. And, and uh, you know, hymns don't do you good when you're thinking about the cardinal singing. And I remember sitting in the shadow of that painting of the red birds, and finally I just broke down. I said, Grant, I've done a bad thing, and I confessed. And I was crying, and she was embracing me, and she was saying, it's okay. It's okay. I love you. Now, I'm sure there was more said, but that's the most important thing that I remembered because those words and that embrace felt a whole lot like healing. You know what I mean? Did I tell you about smoking the camel cigarette in order to get into the jackets? I didn't? Yes, I did, three or four times. You were asleep by then. Yeah, we had a club in my little hometown. There's the Jackets. You know, it was the bigger boys and the one bully. And, and, you know, everybody knew about the club even though it was secret. But you couldn't just join the club. And my, my mother was going to the grocery store. I was playing in the yard. And she said, whatever you do, don't leave the yard. Okay, Mom, I'll stay here and play. As soon as she left, guess what? Here come the Jackets. And, and they said to me, we want you, Stan, to be in the club. This is the sort of thing makes mamas proud. Her son, a jacket. Now that jacket comes from the yellow jackets, which were, uh, you know, kind of a famous little insect in our part of the world that was not a friend to many. 
I said, well, what do I have to do? They said, well, you've got to go to the clubhouse. We're going to have to blindfold you because we don't want you to see the way to the clubhouse. Now, let me tell you something. We're talking Chandler, Texas. There's nowhere they could take me. I hadn't already been. But they blindfolded me. And a short time later, I was there in the clubhouse, and I said, yep, seen this before. And then they said, well, the initiation is you have to smoke one of these. And it was a little camel cigarette, you know, the kind without the filter. Yeah, some of you know I wouldn't admit that. All right. So they lit it. I'll never forget it. And they handed it to me. And I did what I thought you were supposed to do with the camel cigarette. And I inhaled and I began to cough like I'd never coughed before in my entire life. In fact, I can still remember the leader of the club saying, quick, we got to get him out of here. We don't want him to die in the club. (laughs) So off they whisked me away back home. And guess what? Be home. She pulls up. You know how you mamas are. She took one look at me. Free, free, and not quite. She said, what on earth happened to you? And at the sound of those simple words, I began to cry just as bad as I was coughing. And I confessed the whole thing. And she took me in her arms and she said, it's okay. It's okay. I'm sure I got reprimanded later, but what I can still feel today is that embrace. And that forgiveness. And that healing. The point is that our need for confession goes way back with most of us. And our experience of confession, perhaps you've got these two that go way, way back. And that understanding of forgiveness and healing is one that you never forget. There's something real important and basic to the human nature to have the need to confess our shortcomings, our sins, our moral failures, and to confess them to another Now, 12-steppers will be quick to say, you don't do step five with your mama or or your friend. It, It needs to be a confidant. It needs to maybe be a counselor. It needs to be a pastor. It needs to be someone who you can really be real with without really thinking about other stuff that family sometimes brings into the equation. We also need to know that that confession of, to God is also very important, and it's where you begin. For God is always quick to embrace and quick to forgive and quick to be about healing. But you can't stop there with step five. You have to go to that other, the flesh and blood. And you have to share from your heart in order to really do step five. James got it. 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And who can be righteous apart from forgiveness? Righteousness is not something that that we earn. It's not something that we can be good enough to attain. Righteousness is what we are given by grace through our confession and forgiveness, our healing. You know, the good news is that confession to each other via step four and step five plus prayer for each other equals healing. And may healing be so for you at your family tables. May healing be so for you in your marriage or your singleness or or your family at church. May the peace of Christ rule in your heart. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And may healing, true healing, be your gift. Amen.